And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Any list of promising young political leaders in the country would include Bakari Sellers, who uh, has an amazing story elected to the South Carolina legislature at the age of 22, uh, ran for lieutenant governor at 30, uh, now a uh, widely followed commentator on CNN and elsewhere, and uh, also a fellow at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, where I caught up with him to talk about his life and career, his family's celebrated history in the civil rights movement, and the future. Bakari Sellers, my friend, it's great, <laughs> great uh, to see you. You uh, are, I know, the uh, Prince of Denmark, <laughs> I will take Denmark, that. South uh, <laughs> Carolina. But uh, I, I, I was uh, saying to you before we started rolling, I, I was really overwhelmed when I did a little research. I knew your dad was a significant figure in the mm-hmm. history of the civil rights movement, but uh, I didn't realize how significant until I uh, I looked more deeply into it. But tell me a little bit about Cleveland Sellers. Well, uh, my mom and dad both um, put a, a high value on education in our household growing up. Um, but even more importantly than that, uh, we had to understand and know where we were coming from. Uh, my father was shot on February 8th, 1968 in Orangeburg, South Carolina. He was national. Explain, explain the significance of Orangeburg, because that was known as the Orangeburg, Orangeburg Massacre. Massacre. It was a real landmark and a sad landmark in the it was, history of race relations in this country. I think that in 1968, um, you, and you had the Orangeburg Massacre first, and then subsequently you had the assassination of King and Kennedy. So it was definitely a, a rough year. But students uh, at that campus, they were protesting what the history books call the last vestige of discrimination in Orangeburg. It was a whites-only bowling alley. Uh, they went down on the 6th, and they uh, protested um, the the police at the These time. These are students from South Carolina State University, which is in yeah, Orangeburg. in Orangeburg. And um, uh, the police at the time and state troopers came and surrounded the students, and they beat many of the students with police batons that night. Um, uh, Mr. Stroman, John Stroman. Claiming told, that they had been shot at, there was no evidence. That, that was it. on the 8th. So this was on the 6th. Oh, I this see. This is how yeah, it started. Yeah, yeah. This is the sequence. Um, yes. Yeah, and so— uh, uh, you know, many of the students were beat. John Stroman says that he witnessed a young lady being held by two state troopers while another one beat her um, with a baton. Then came the seventh, nothing happened. Then came the eighth when the students went and protested again. This time when state troopers came, they got the right idea. They went back to their campus and they built a huge bonfire. Um, and for eight seconds, uh, South Carolina state troopers fired shots into the group of students. Not rubber bullets or tear gas, but double, deadly double-out buckshots, the same bullets we used to hunt deer. Uh, they killed three, Henry Smith, Samuel Hammond, and Delano Middleton, and uh, they wounded uh, upwards of 29 uh, college students. Uh, actually, one of the young men uh, who was uh, killed that night, uh, Delano Middleton, was um, 17 years old. He was a uh, high school student who was actually there to walk his mom home uh, from work, who was a custodian on the campus. And so um, I my father, your father was not a student there. My father was not a student there. My father was uh, li- residing across the street from the campus, uh, and the students uh, s- they would seek out his uh, because knowledge your dad. And we we should just back up and say your dad had 
a history in the civil rights movement that predated Correct. this, that went back to 1960 when there was this effort to desegregate lunch counters <laughs> Correct. in Orangeburg. And he, he well, in, in, in Denmark. Denmark, in Denmark. At, at Voorhees College at right, the time. Yeah. In Denmark. And he was uh, just a kid at the time. Yeah. I, that's the most amazing part about the movement at that time, and I guess very similar to today, that uh, many of the individuals who uh, pushed the envelope of change in this country were kids. I mean, my dad was 15, 16 years old. His parents were were scared to death um, of him getting involved in the movement. He went to Howard University, um, where he befriended Stokely Carmichael. Stokely graduated and then convinced my dad to drop out of school. So my dad dropped out of Howard Went to Miami University of Ohio, where SNCC was doing training for Freedom Summer. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating, Coordinating Committee. Committee. And Stokely Carmichael was, of course, uh, Stokely Carmichael. A, a Kwame Ture, as he uh, was his name when he passed away. But Stokely Carmichael is the godfather of my sister. He was my father's best friend. Uh, my father, we were talking about the Orange Rug Massacre. All the officers who fired into the group of students were um, charged, but they were all found not guilty. They actually arrested my father that night while he was shot. They charged him with five felony counts. Um, they ended up backdating. Now, the let me ask you about that. Did they know who he was? Yes. And uh, not to be a conspiracy theorist, but if you look There's at— There's a lot of that going around, so be, well, be my no, guest. I know. This, uh, this one may have some foundation. <laughs> uh, if you look at uh, Henry Smith and my father at the time, they look uh, nearly identical. Um, and Henry Smith actually was, uh, was shot in the head. Um, and so my father maintains the theory that— um, he, he carries a lot of, of, of heartache about that night because he feels as if uh, Henry Smith was probably dead uh, because they wanted him dead. Um, you have three young men. So who, he f- feels he, he was maybe being targeted. Being that targeted. Night. Yeah, I mean, they had a uh, – they actually – at his home across the street, they had a tank. The South Carolina Law Enforcement Division had their tank pointed directly at his home. And so that's why he was on campus because he wanted to get out of that house and he went and he stayed on campus that night. And was he in Orangeburg? Was he living there he was to living be organized students there? It, he was hoping to, re, to restart school at, mm-hmm. at South Carolina State. My father uh, ended up subsequently graduating from uh, um, Shaw University um, because he dropped out of Howard and then he was arrested. And this kind of threw everything off track. In between the time of his trial and his arrest, it was a few years. He he got his two and uh, a half years. Got later. his master's from Harvard, so he was probably the only person in the South Carolina Department of Corrections with a master's from Harvard. But um, the interesting thing is when they um, when they arrested him that night on February eighth and transported him, there was a there's a they used to call the jail in Orangeburg the Pink Castle because it was a pink building, and he came out hardly a castle, hardly a castle, and he had a sling on. And he had these high water jeans and some Chuck Taylors. And they transported them all the way up from Orangeburg to Columbia. They blocked off the interstate, which is 40 miles, and no one was allowed on. Everybody on was pushed off. It was the first and only time in our state's history they completely shut down the interstate. And they housed him on death row. He was housed on death row for about two or three weeks. Um, while and that was, I guess, purportedly for his own safety. Is that what they said? They deemed him to be an outside agitator. And oh, so yeah. they did not want him to be mixing with other. Oh, I uh, see. Because they thought he might incite, incite the other. Yeah, and he was, a, and he was being charged with <laughs> rioting. And in, my dad is the first and only one man riot in the history of this country. He went to jail for rioting, and he was the only one ever convicted, right, relative to the Orangeburg massacre, and uh, subsequently pardoned. 
uh, later in life. But yeah, he was convicted. Yeah, wrote a book while he was in prison. The River of No Return. It's a great book. Uh, it's the story of a snake militant, as he calls it. If you look at um, many of the images, um, I remember a few. There was one uh, when Stokely Carmichael first coined the term black power. They were in Mississippi, and my father is right behind him with a stoic look and a white T-shirt with his sleeves rolled up. And then uh, if you see Dr. King marching down the street, you'll see like my father like right behind him. Uh, and so he's always been uh, right there. And You know, those two guys, uh, uh, Stokely Carmichael and Martin Luther King, represented kind of a divergence yes. in the civil rights movement. You, 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 when you were talking about your father and how young he was when he did the lunch boycott, it made me think of my conversation with John Lewis, who similarly— that was a powerful, powerful interview, went, Thank you. Went off to uh, uh, college uh, in uh, Tennessee, I guess Nashville, yes. and, uh, and was involved in trying to desegregate the— and his parents were absolutely— Terrified, terrified for him, and and the story that he, stories that he told uh, about time after time after time, just putting himself in situations where he where he literally was putting his life at risk, and certainly was putting himself in line to get beaten or bitten, uh, and of course he did ultimately get beaten almost to death at at Selma, uh, and he was just a kid. They, my father, what. What motivated my father to be a part of the movement was Emmett Till. He says when he was young, he would always keep a picture of Emmett Till. He said the bravest woman he knew was Emmett Till's mother because she elected to um, allow there to be an open casket. Um, right, Emmett, Emmett Till, uh, thirteen murdered as a thirteen-year-old for allegedly whistling. And we just found out that whole story was yes. concocted a, a few months ago by the woman he was alleged <laughs> to have whistled at. Correct, and so. Um, and so, and then you you just but that image, the open casket, was in the 1950s was Everything. a uh, was a galvanizing event in the history of the civil rights movement. And so, when you when you think about that, and my father's first mission was to go to Philadelphia, Mississippi. He was in Philadelphia, Mississippi. He always says that you know the Emmett Tills, and you know uh, some of the names of the black bodies that are floating in swamps and creeks in Mississippi, but there are hundreds of others uh, that, that went uh, unnamed. And so he was hiding in barns and sheds. At, 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 During the Mississippi Freedom Summer. Correct. And Philadelphia, Mississippi, of course, is where those three civil rights Goodman, workers Turner disappeared and, and were found uh, murdered. They were friends of his. They had all been in Miami University of Ohio together oh, yeah. where they were doing their training. And so that's why he was put on that mission to go and, and look for their bodies and when you think about this you're talking about kids looking for kids you know? yeah so yeah um the where uh where i was going on the on the the, the fisher and the civil rights movement is that uh martin luther king uh john lewis uh were steadfast uh believers in nonviolence. Uh, and there were differences about that, and uh, th- there were other leaders, and Stokely Carmichael was one of them, who who didn't uh, believe that. Y- your father, you said, marched behind King, yeah. um, and stood by Stokely Carmichael. Where was he in that discussion? Oh, my, uh, my father will tell you that he was a radical. There's no question. My father would chant "Black Power," but "Black Power" wasn't a militant phrase at the time. It's it was 
co-opted. Uh, black power meant uh, economic power. Even more importantly, it meant political power. Um, it wasn't it wasn't some uh, galvanizing f- phrase to to uh, have an assembly of black rage by any stretch, but it meant being self-sufficient and, and retaking your communities and then empowering your communities. Um, but they pushed, I, I, sometimes we look back on people like Dr. King or Muhammad Ali and, um, we don't understand them to be as militant as they were. And although there was a definite nonviolent message of Dr. King, uh, Dr. King very much pushed the envelope, um, when it, when it came to, um, various protest tactics or demonstrations. And so I think my father was a part of a younger group. SNCC was a younger organization than the, uh, than SCLC and Dr. King and many other ministers. Um, and there was tension between the groups, but, um, my father was a definite rebel and militant to, to say the least. It was interesting to hear Lewis talk about, um, about what happened in Mississippi and the death of those civil rights workers and the death of uh, Viola Liuzzo, mm-hmm. who was a civil rights worker from Detroit, uh, because he he said that, uh, and they knew this, that when white Americans were uh, being beaten or killed, that that would that would galvanize the country, and they and they were right about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so nonviolence uh, did not mean lack of violence. It means sub- it meant in certain ways submitting to violence. Uh, if you, in, you February first, nineteen sixty, you had the three students from North Carolina A&T that set in at the Woolworths counter and yes. sparked the quote unquote sit in movement. But if you look at the violence that they endured at that one moment, I mean, they were uh, you know white customers were pouring milkshakes on them, yeah. they were spitting on them, they were throwing hamburgers at them. I mean. Um, but it wasn't until those images were seen around the world uh, on the Edmund Pettus Bridge where people were like, holy hell, yeah. like, you know, the trauma that black Southerners are going through, the 16th Street bombing. I mean, it literally bombed a church um, and killed, killed four, little, four girls. little girls Yeah, and so in Alabama. Do you, uh, you should I, I, I highly recommend it to you. You may have been there already. Uh, but to others, well, we we did the Lewis interview in a museum in Atlanta, mm-hmm. a civil rights museum, where they have a facsimile of the lunch counter, and you can put your hands on the counter and a headset on and hear uh, a, a depiction of what uh, those mm-hmm. young men and women heard when they were sitting at the lunch counter. And it, it is a horrifying thing. Brought Lewis to tears because that. it was so uh, because it was so real. Uh, and and where was your mom in all of, of this? My mom went to Gustavus Adolphus in Minnesota. And uh, she was the uh, daughter of a very prominent black pastor at the time who kept her pretty well removed from the civil rights movement um, until my father uh, caught up with her and found her. My, my mom was in higher education for a number of years, 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and so that's where we got this insatiable desire to, to, to always be on this journey for knowledge acquisition. But uh, she was always a very strong supporter of, of my father. And I think that she, uh, my, my sister's name. Now, were they together during this period when he was? My, my sister's name is Nosizwe Abadame Sellers. It's Swahili. Abadame means born while father's away um, because hmm. um, she was born while my father was um, incarcerated. Um, and they're, they're the first the first picture they have together um, 
I can't remember the gentleman's name in the prison who took it, but she was able to bring in, they were sitting on the yard and she was able to bring in a camera and they had their big afros and my dad has on his blue prison denims and, uh, he's holding my sister for the first time. And so, um, you know, there was a lot of difficulty that she had to go through as a woman, as a mother, as a wife, because, uh, you know, my father's activism, um, took him out of her life for a while. And, um, further he you know they grew up on my brother and sister had to deal with instances of welfare a little bit more because uh it's difficult to be black and have a felony in the south in which he had um and so although he was able to uh, he he went on and got a doctorate and became uh, yeah uh, a professor and, right. and you know was an integral part of the african-american studies department at the university of south carolina and a college president but uh that took time. That took time, as the quote says. Life ain't always been a crystal stair. Yeah. Now, you came along a lot later. I was an accident, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but a happy accident. Let's, uh, let's assert that. Uh, in, in 1984. Um, and growing up, uh, was, was this history very much part of the household conversation? No question. I mean, I, you know, when I go to D.C., I have to go see uh, Uncle Marion. That's Marion Perry. Marion Perry. Yeah, and he would take me around, and we get hot dogs on the street. Um, you know, we knew um, some of the m- more radical figures like H. Rat Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Kathleen Cleaver would call the house. Um, Julian Bond was my uh, just everything. I mean, he was one of my father's very, very good friends, um, but he just meant so much to all of us. And so these, you know, we didn't, I didn't, read history in books you lived it. i lived it yeah and many people who are we call it we refer to ourselves as children of the movement and many of us who are children of the movement even little jesse can tell you the same thing um it's a, you have a certain ownership and pride of that torch and you make sure it doesn't burn out and was it how did you process this as a kid in terms of your own aspirations because I'd say if you look the word precocious up in the dictionary, <laughs> your picture would be there. I mean, you you started high school at what, like 12 years old? 12, yeah. And uh, you finished college when you were 20. You were a legislator by the time you were 22, lawyer by the time you were 23. What what was it that motivated you? Where did you think you were going? I was, I, I'm, I was and am uh, angrier. Um, at my great state of South Carolina for February 8th, 1968, than I think my father even is. And I think a lot of that anger, um, I'm writing right now, it's called Anger is Not Sin, but I think a lot of that anger fueled um, me wanting to be a change agent, and I just had to figure out how to get there, and I wanted to be a part of that as quickly as possible. And so my ascension was was a little quicker, um, and I wouldn't change anything or trade anything in the world, but it was driven by in anger for the condition. I, I've told, um, Joanne Reed once one Sunday morning, we were, um, in Charleston after the Charleston massacre. I said, my father at the time he was 70 and I was 30. We're 40 years apart and we have many of the same shared experiences and that drives me crazy. And so, um, you know, shared experiences in terms of dealing with discrimination, discrimination, burying people we love because Mm -hmm. of, racism and and hate um you know you you look at some of the socioeconomic conditions that many people of color grow up in punished because of the zip code that they're born into um not far from where we're sitting today you can go to east chicago 
and you have the environmental injustices that are comparable to that of Flint. Um, and so uh, it, trying to grapple and, and destruct, deconstruct all of these systems is just a continuation of my father's journey. He ran for office at one time? <laughs> yeah, I was way more successful. Uh-huh. Yeah, what did he run for? <laughs> he ran for a city council in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. We were, my father didn't return to South Carolina after he was uh, let go from uh, prison. Um, his mom and dad didn't want him to come back at all. Uh, so he resettled in, in Greensboro and went to UNCG to get his uh, doctorate, et cetera. So uh, he ran for office. He was the national uh, Southern Regional Field Director for uh, Jesse Jackson mm-hmm. in 1984 um, and uh, was always around politics. Uh, I don't know if he won many races, though. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but did you um, did you know early on that politics was a way that uh, – that you uh, wanted to go, that that was, you said you want to be a change agent. That was what our parents told us. They gave us a few rules growing up. One, they were going to pay for you to go to college if you went to an historically black college or university. You go to a majority institution after that. And so I went to Morehouse, my brother went to Morehouse, my sister went to Xavier. And two, you had to be a change agent. And so my brother actually went in the ministry, my sister's a doctor, and I was a lawyer who wanted to be in politics. I did not get the bug the political bug, which you just cannot get rid of until I went to Capitol Hill and worked for United States Congressman James Clyburn in college. And um, between uh, Jim Clyburn and Shirley Franklin, I've been sure the, the mayor, uh, the former, former mayor, mayor of, of Atlanta. Atlanta. I've yep. been consumed with uh, politics. It's my, my life. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Bakari Seller. So you you say you caught the bug. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it about being on the hill that uh, that that, that uh, so planning? And how old were you when you were doing that? Uh, seventeen. Mm-hmm. I think I was a sophomore in college. So freshman, sophomore in college. So seventeen. Um, you know, who was the Secretary of State when the Hanging Chad episode came? Catherine. Uh-oh. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, Catherine Harris? Harris, yes, in Florida. In yes. Florida. And so um, one of the things that I remember is uh, Catherine Harris was a new congress, uh, congressman. And uh, people, contrary to popular belief, South Carolina is the largest producer of peaches, not Georgia. And so every year, one of the members of the South Carolina delegation would be able to deliver peaches to all 535 people. And um, Catherine Harris was in my next stop. I was a baby so you were <laughs> delivering peaches. I was delivering peaches. And, yeah, the and, role of a congressional intern <laughs> can be a humbling experience. It can be yes. a humbling yes. experience. Yes. Uh, and so I, I'll just tell you that we were very, very resentful of having to deliver Catherine Harris uh, those peaches. But I, I tell that story just to say that you were always around the epicenter of power and change. And, um, I mean, at that time, the the discourse uh, maybe I just want to believe this, but the discourse was a lot more civil than it is now. Um, but it just... It, it's a it, low bar. It, it was a low bar. It consumed me. Um, and, and Jim Clyburn and, and Shirley Franklin, they taught me something that I live by today, which is um, it can never be about politics. It has to be about public service. And they they didn't look at themselves as politicians. They As, as shrewd and cunning yeah, as they, they both are. they both are very good ones. Yes. <laughs> yes. They looked at themselves as, as public servants. And so I, I, I would not be anywhere n- near successful in politics without those two. So uh, tell me about running for state rep when you were 22. 
I'm uh, presumably I, the youngest ever in in South Carolina. Right? You got to talk to David Beasley. Me and David Beasley get into this all the time. But yes, I was the youngest ever. He assumes that he was, but he's he's incorrect. Um, uh, I announced when in I was in case he's listening. In case he's listening, yeah. uh, I announced when I was 21 years old at our truck depot, um, train depot. Excuse me. And, and you you were just out of you just graduated. I from just Morehouse. graduated from, from Morehouse. I was my, in my one L year of law school at the University of South Carolina. I came downstairs and I told my mom and dad I was going to run for the South Carolina House of Representatives. And my mom was cooking spaghetti and my dad was on the Cook Island going through the newspaper as he always does. And without any hesitation, my mom said, I'll vote for you. And my dad said, I'll think about it. And so <laughs> that was my that was my announcement to them uh, that I was going to do it. And I went out and I had maybe 40 people at my announcement. And then for nine months, I had a plan for nine months every Friday night, I was usually at a high school football game or basketball game. Every Saturday and Sunday, I was knocking on doors. And uh, as the election got closer, I began to knock on more doors. But June 13, 2006, I beat Representative Thomas Road, who was 82 years old and the oldest member in the South Carolina House, who had been in, uh, he'd been in the legislature for 26 years. And before that, he was the chair of the county council. And before that, he delivered milk. Mm-hmm. Um, and so everyone knew who he was. And we won 55 to 45, and it was just one of the best days of my life. How much money, by the way, did it cost you? $26,000. Yeah. And and for anyone listening who wants to go into politics, there is a virtue to running a campaign like that because uh, I would get like $5 from the old lady who wore the big hat who sat on the front row in my church. But... I mean, she wanted that $5 to win. So she was on the phone. She was making phone calls. She was baking brownies for my, my team. And so it, we didn't have any, um, you know, high price consultants or anything. We just had somebody who knew how to cut maps and people who wanted to knock on doors with me. That was the extent of and, our campaign. And how large did that volunteer organization become over the course of your campaign? It got pretty big. I, got, I had some law school friends that would come down. Um, you know, we would have 20 people out there knocking sometimes. And I believe that I needed to touch each voter three times. That means I wanted to knock on their door. I wanted them to get a piece of mail from me and I wanted to call their home. And, um, it was actually a decent strategy. I don't know if a strategy that that unsophisticated could work anymore, but it did then. So what's it like to go to the, uh, South Carolina legislature as a, as a 22 year old? Uh, during our orientation period, by the way, my freshman class was pretty, uh, pretty cool. Um, the, the vice president of my vice chair, whatever he was called of my freshman class was none other than Mick Mulvaney. Oh, is that right? Yes. Now the budget director, the budget director Nick, so, uh, for Mick, Donald Trump. My, my trajectory is from friends that were, were really interesting. Mick is a friend. So uh, Mick Mulvaney was budget director. Governor is budget director. Governor uh, at the time was Mark Sanford. Mm-hmm. Um, United States Congressman. Mm-hmm. Um, the year, the two years before I got elected, there was a young lady named Nikki Haley yes. who got elected um, and to the legislature. To the legislature, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, two years after I was elected, we had a young freshman legislator that I used to make go get me coffee and everything by the name of Tim Scott. And so uh, <laughs> we, I, I had some interesting experiences. But I, I remember during my orientation period the. Uh, Los well, let me just stop you before you get get to your orientation period, because you said something that I think in this environment people would str- would strike people as as odd, and I think it's important to 
talk about it, which is you say uh, Mulvaney was your it wasn't is your friend. Yeah. And you probably get this all the time. I do, you know, like I can't believe you're friends with this person or that person. Explain that. Because, you you know, you obviously have great passion about issues that Donald Trump is right in the middle of. Mulvaney is clearly, uh, you know, the the point of the spear on his, on a lot of Trump's. Mick Mulvaney is brilliant. And Mick Mulvaney is somebody who, I've always got along with on a very personal level. He was somebody who was always kind. He was kind to my family. Um, he would bring his family around. Um, and we used to always say that we both want the best for South Carolina. We just have two vastly different ways of trying to get there. And probably vastly different constituencies, too. Vastly different constituencies. Um, you know, Mick beat somebody who I admire and think is a hero, but as is politics. Uh, you know, you were there when John Spratt carried the water mm-hmm. for the ACA in the White House and every and everyone Absolutely. else. Absolutely, and uh, Mick he Mulvaney, went down in the he went he went deluge down. of two thousand and ten. Correct, uh, and so and one of the things that's amazing about that is after Mick Mulvaney became a quote unquote rock star and celebrity, and even now in his position, he still texts me when he sees me on State of the Union in the morning. He'll he'll say good job. Um, the same with Nikki Haley. Um, I talk to Nikki Haley once a month via text or once every, if, if she's done something I like, I'll, I'll be like, I'm proud of you. Thank you for representing the state. Well, and even if it's something I politically disagree with, I will say, how's your family? How are the kids? Cause you know, they didn't really ask for all of this and they're having to live yeah, in that fishbowl. I mean, I just, you know, uh, the reason I stopped you is because, um, you know, my theory is that we have to be able to find common uh, ground common ground and the humanity in, in yeah. each other uh, and uh, it's easier to hate people if you don't know them when I tell you that one of my favorite people I've served with is Mark Sanford truly Mark Sanford um, invited me to his governor's mansion on a number of occasions and we would the reason he brought me back the second time is because he wanted to sit down he and his wife at the time Jenny wanted to sit down with me and have a conversation about my father's book about mm-hmm. the river of no return they literally invited me as a 22, 23-year-old legislator over to the governor's mansion just to talk about my father and the history of South Carolina. And so um, just those moments, Tim is the same way. Uh, Does that ever translate into actually being able to work together on, on any issues? With like Mark, in your experience with Mark Sanford, Carolina. probably not. Yes. <laughs> he, was, uh, he didn't really uh, have a whole bunch of teammates even on the uh, Republican side of the right. aisle. Uh, for for so anything, he's still kind of off on his own. He's on his own, um, but you know, I mean, you know where he's coming from. Mark mm-hmm. is Mark is Mark. Um, Tim, on the other hand, and I, um, and Trey Tim Gowdy, Scott, and yeah. Trey Gowdy as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trey's Trey's invited me up to testify um, at the next hearing they're having on criminal justice reform. So, you know, <laughs> are you diametrically opposed politically on some things? Yes, but are you able to find some common ground in some places? Yes, um, and so. As a as a black Democrat in South Carolina, who for my eight years I served would have to go outside and take a deep breath under the auspices of the Confederate flag, you look for those moments where you can have some semblance of success. And even if that means that I have to go to Tim Scott or Lindsey Graham, who was my only United States senator because Jim DeMint didn't do anything, um, or Mark Sanford or, or Nikki Haley or Mick Mulvaney, then you do that because, you know, my constituents come from communities that are very poor and in the corridor of shame where the heating and air don't work and the infrastructure is falling apart where kids go to school 
And so you search for those successes and sometimes you have to go through ours to get there. And it, it, it ultimately was uh, Governor Haley who took the, that, those flags down. Uh, she deserves, um, she deserves a modicum of credit. It, <laughs> it, uh, I think, you know, it's a moment that I was interviewing Kirsten Gillibrand recently and she said she, she hasn't voted for, I don't think, but one or two of uh, Donald Trump's appointees. Um, and she said that she voted for uh, Nikki Haley because Nikki Haley took the flag down and she must have compassion. And I don't really correct a lot of people when they say that, but it do, it does rub me the wrong way because nine people died. So that flag would come down, um, you know, that night when Clem was, um, when Clem was murdered, uh, Senator Pinckney was a friend of yours. Yeah. He, so our districts overlapped. I was the house member and his Senate district overlapped mine Mm -hmm. district. And when I first got there, he was the youngest state Senator. So he, you know, had a huge booming voice and was uh, someone who took me under their wing. One of my last campaign events in my, um, I guess it wasn't ill-fated, but my not successful run for lieutenant governor was at his church. We had a fish fry. But uh, I tell you this to say that um, one of the most difficult things law enforcement has to do is when they walk into a, a murder scene or a scene where there's a lot of death and devastation and they hear those phones ringing. Um, but people trying people to call trying to find their, their loved, loved ones. ones. Yeah. I was one of those phones ringing that night because when I heard uh, that someone had shot up Mother Emanuel, first thing I did was call Clem. Um, you know, let me ask you about that uh, because um, you you were you were quoted and you've talked about the fact that guns is part of the culture mm-hmm. or part of the culture of South Carolina, and um, uh, you know you you've tried to walk that line. Uh, as a, a legislator, um, first of all, explain a little bit about that the culture because this is a discussion that you know if you come from where we're sitting right now mm-hmm. and parents are looking out the window worrying about whether their kids will get home from school without getting shot, guns have a completely different meaning than if you grow up in rural Correct. South Carolina. So tell me, as someone who well, walks gun, that line. Guns are very prevalent in the South. And, you know, as a Southern Southern Democrat, um, I took my concealed weapons permit class next to Nikki Haley. We got our concealed weapons permit and shot. We, you have to take a shooting test. We took it together. Um, that doesn't mean, though, that we don't want sensible gun ownership and common sense gun reform. I mean, the reason that Dylan Roof was able to get a gun is because after uh, 72 hours, uh, if the federal government, if the FBI doesn't come back with a background check, then they, the owner of that store can sell you a gun regardless, which we refer to it as the Charleston loophole. The background check wasn't complete. If there was a completed background check, Dylan Roof wouldn't have got the gun that he used to kill nine people. Um, and so, you know, universal background checks, all of those things are important. But in the South, there is a, a and it, it cuts across races and it cuts across economic backgrounds. There is a uh, proclivity. Um, to have gun ownership. Because there's a fear, though. I mean, universal background checks are not the law of the land, even though 90% of Americans say they support it because um, the NRA opposes it, and they oppose it because they— The most they, powerful lobby in the history of this country. And they don't, they don't uh, allow for any breach in that because they say it's a slippery slope mm-hmm. and it'll open the door to other things. And that's a majority view where you come from. Well, you know, we've had um, we've had some some very serious instances of, of shootings on, on campuses and in high schools. 
um, back when my father was on the State Department of Education. One of the first school shootings we had in this country um, was at Blackville Hilda High School. Um, and so we, we've had these instances. And as a legislator, what I wanted to do was represent my constituents, no, no question. But I also wanted to um, have some progressive uh, gun reform and some progressive issues that I was able to hang my hat on. Uh, do you think we can overcome this just to put a button on this gun? Is there a way to find common ground on this or is it just impossible? No. I think, I mean, listen, to be as blunt as I always am and even sometimes on CNN, you reel me back in. <laughs> uh, but if uh, 20 plus little white kids can be gunned down in an elementary school and we don't fix the gun laws in this country, we're not going to do it now. Talk, talk to me about your work, at, your other work as a legislator, and uh, the things that you were my my proudest, proudest moment, of doing. It. My proudest moment is something that's not really sexy. Um, I went and got seven hundred thousand dollars for our state budget, and we built a library in Denmark, South Carolina. And people are like, "What? You know, building a library?" Uh, the reason that it was so amazing is because. Um, where you have a great deal of poverty, people don't think about the other gaps and divides that you have. So in my community, we have a huge technological divide. And so uh, that's now where people go to apply for jobs, um, send and receive basic emails. Uh, they do at some after-school programs in there just so kids have resources, um, summer programs in there. And so for me, it was just just a small way that I could put my district into the 21st century um, on my watch uh, because we didn't expand Medicaid and some other things, my hospital closed down. Um, I, I, I was in Time Magazine and People Magazine, ironically enough, in the same week. Uh, the reason I was in People Magazine is because they were profiling schools that were still falling apart. This was in 2010. And they profiled a school that was a mile from my house. Um, the day before the photographer went in, uh, the cafeteria roof collapsed. And it's not something that makes a CNN ticker or MSNBC ticker or anything else because that's the typical condition of schools in my area. And so I was attempting to highlight all of these things and be a voice for so many people who, um, whose voices went unheard. Um, but having legislative successes, again, being a dim in the South is, uh, you know, far and few between. And yet you were able to get the 700,000 and presumably, uh, get that, that school repaired. And we got that. We, uh, thanks to build America bonds. Um, and you guys in Washington D.C. Yes, we were able to uh, we were able to get those um, schools built. We're we're here. You're you're here as a fellow at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, for which I'm really really grateful. You know, part of what I I struggle with um, is that uh, young people are very interested today in changing the world, but they're pretty skeptical about whether politics is the way to do it. After your experience, you spent six years, eight, eight years in the legislature. Yes. That how I spent my twenties, I think is how you, <laughs> you, uh, you refer to it. Uh, do you, what do you tell uh, people who say, you know what? The, I, I see the spectacle and uh, I just don't think that's the best way to make things happen. Well, I tell people you can make, things happen in two ways, either be inside the system or outside the system. And, you know, I have friends like DeRay and others who are in Black Lives Matter and others. DeRay McKesson. DeRay McKesson, yeah. who they push the status quo from the outside. 
Um, you have a lot of my friends who are Bernie Sanders supporters who want to push the system from the outside. You were not a Bernie Sanders supporter. I was not a Bernie Sanders supporter. Um, I was a Hillary Clinton supporter, and I was I was very thankful I made the right choice. And a Barack Obama supporter, early supporter. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I appreciated my role inside the system, and I tell people, look, don't wait. Um, we need more good people involved. I was doing office hours recently here at the University of Chicago, and I told a young man that, you know, go home. And as soon as you graduate, run for office. We need you. And I'm very encouraging of people to run from dog catcher on up because we need more talented people. You, uh, you've made uh, uh, an impact not just as a elected official, but also as a as a lawyer, and there were some battles you fought. One for uh, uh, for uh, black farmers. Yes. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Uh, I was a young lawyer, baby lawyer, working with some amazing people, um, and we filed a lawsuit on behalf of black farmers throughout the South um, against the U- U.S. Department of Agriculture. And the reason we did it is because they had a pattern of discriminating when it came to farm loans. And so we uh, were very successful. We settled that case for one point to $1.3 billion. Um, that was probably my second proudest moment. My proudest moment as a lawyer has been that I, I successfully sued the state of South Carolina um, and the Supreme Court. Uh, I got a chance to argue in front of our Supreme Court ruled that our domestic violence laws were unconstitutional because they didn't cover same-sex couples. And so, um, I don't know. I, I just, I, that's the type of stuff that gets me going, you know, being able to, you know, change the world in whatever field I'm doing. You, uh, you ran for lieutenant governor mm-hmm. in 2014. Some people would argue, just on the face of it, lieutenant governor isn't the best place from which to change the world. <laughs> uh, but uh, you ran nonetheless. Uh, and you were, what, 30? You were eight years 30, in the legislature. Yeah. Uh, why, uh, why lieutenant governor? And, and what prospects did you think you had running statewide in South Carolina? I thought I was going to win. I thought I was going to make history. We hadn't had an African-American elected statewide in South Carolina since the Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I, I was thinking about this the other day. I'm, although I wasn't the one who was able to shatter that, that ceiling, I'm really glad it was somebody like Tim Scott, who I have a great deal of respect for, who is now the first African-American elected statewide in South Carolina since Reconstruction. Ran um, as a Republican. Ran as a Republican. And, um, you know, I got 505,000 votes. Uh, we raised nearly a million dollars. I went to all 46 counties in South Carolina. Got to meet amazing people. I know where every single Zaxby's is in the state of South Carolina. Um, and it's an experience that I cherish. But I also know that um, when I run for office again, uh, I will only run for one of two seats or two seats. That would be uh, United States Congress or, or governor of South Carolina. Um, I don't really have any interest in running for attorney general or lieutenant governor or, or a state senator or anything of that sort. I noticed you said when, not if. Yeah. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Bakari Sellers. You uh, have experienced uh, the, the continuing um, struggles relative to race, uh, particularly in the South, but all over uh, the country. One of them has to do uh, with uh, voter registration. Hmm. Uh, talk about the state of play there, and are we moving backward or forward in terms of voting rights in this country? Oh, we're moving backwards. There's, there's no question about it. Uh, if you look at someone like a Rick Scott, 
or Governor Scott Walker in Wisconsin. And you look at what they're doing, the purging of the rolls, voter ID bills, I mean, uh, restricting absentee ballots or how one can actually request or process an absentee ballot, um, all under the name of some security, voter security or sanctity of the ballot. Uh, when we don't have these issues in our country, um, they're just fundamentally making it more and more difficult for people to be a part of the process. I believe there were 200,000 plus people in Wisconsin who were kicked off the rolls um, and purged um, prior to this recent election in 2016. Um, I don't want to say that would have changed the outcome, but that probably would have changed the outcome of the race. Yeah, well, 27,000 votes was the margin, I think, in yeah. Wisconsin in the presidential race. Correct. And so, you know, when you when you think about this, we're we're taking, you know— and in in my perspective, I know the price that was paid for, you know, individuals to have access to the ballot box, and um, it, it's it's very troubling because you have organizations. You, we talk when we're talking about guns. You, you mentioned the NRA, but um, when we're talking about these pieces of legislation, we have to talk about ALEC and groups that um, conservative think tank groups that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, push forth these these bills which take our country backwards. Why aren't there? Uh significant now i know i'm going to get notes from people who talk about their organizations <laughs> but why is it, why is the republican party so much more effective at uh these kinds of efforts is it because of funding is it because i mean there seems no, to be have, more at the grassroots we have rich democrats too so i mean i know that people talk about the, the are they investing co- their money wrong <laughs> uh, maybe but i think that it's something totally different i think that um the republican party is more of a a grassroots uh, based group and organization. I think, um, but why should that be? I don't. I don't think it should be. I think Democrats, though, we are a, we are a cult of personality, and I think that we've seen that, especially at the top of the ticket, outside of maybe Jimmy Carter, uh, but JFK, uh, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama. Um, our party always has the most success um, when there is a personality or a figure that drives the topic in the discussion. Um, the Republican Party is completely inverse, or has been, and so that's well, they why. certainly have a guy who drives the topic of discussion now. <laughs> yeah, I don't. That's a whole nother discussion. <laughs> <laughs> what about Hillary? You, I know you were very, very close to her, mm-hmm. uh, and let's stipulate the the sort of extraordinary circumstances relative to the Russians, yeah, relative yeah, to Comey, and so on. But uh, when you listed the cult of personality candidates, uh, she was not among them. No, I think that um, Hillary Clinton would have been, and I, I say this sitting across the table from you, but I think Hillary Clinton would have been the best governing president this country has ever seen. Um, I think that she was arguably one of a, a candidate who had the most difficulty campaigning. I think that she will even tell you that she didn't believe herself to be the best candidate in the world. Um, and, you know, what that is because of, people have a number of, uh, of thoughts. Um, you, you can't can't take away all of the external factors, the sexism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I was very proud to um, support her. Um, and I felt as if we had an amazing opportunity in this country to um, break that ga- glass ceiling. And, and for me, it's, again, personal because I have a 12-year-old daughter who, you know, wants to be president of the United States one day. Um, but it's kind of hard to be say you want to be president when you haven't seen anybody who looks like you'd be president uh well that and that of course was one of the powers of uh one of the 
one of the great uh, legacies of Barack Obama is that there are millions of people in this country who can say that, but we still haven't broken that other barrier. Yeah, I, I, um, my favorite picture of Barack Obama is not one with you in it, David, but <laughs> it's uh, uh, with four-year-old Jacob Philadelphia. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when, he, uh, when Jacob was able to ask the president any question, and does your hair feel like mine? And Barack Obama leaned over and the incomparable Pete Souza took that picture. It was, um, that, that for me, it said everything, didn't it? That was it. That was the most powerful image that I had of that Obama eight years. Uh, we have had this, uh, after, uh, Charlottesville, uh, and the events there, uh, there was this debate that erupted over statues mm-hmm. and whether or not, uh, Confederate statues should occupy positions of, of honor, given what the Confederacy represented. Uh, as someone who comes from the South, uh, is that a productive debate? Uh, and how should public officials handle that debate? I think that um, one of the people who I look forward to getting to know more when they run for president of the United States actually handled this debate better than anybody, Mayor Mitch Landry from uh, New Orleans. He gave one of the better speeches I've heard an elected yeah, official Yeah, it was a great speech. Um, in a long time. Personally, I think uh, Jimmy Carter's wrong. I think they should all come down. Um, I uh, I do think that you know, people say, well, why are you going to get bogged down in, in this debate? Well, I think I can walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. So I think I can have this debate and other debates as well. It, it's very hard uh, when I'm having this discussion with people and they're like, well, you know, you even have to educate people on why the Civil War was fought. And they say, well, this was about states' rights. Uh, this was about an economy. And I say, well, what was the currency of that economy? Um, you know, we, our country, um, you know, had two original sins, um, genocide of, of Native Americans and slavery. And we've never really dealt with either one of those things. Um, you know, other countries uh, don't necessarily have statues to to memorialize and celebrate um, individuals who perpetrated slavery in their country. And so for me, take them all down. I don't want a plaque trying to clarify what the history is. We have a, we have a statue of uh, John C. Calhoun and Pitchfork Tillman in South Carolina, Pitchfork Ben Tillman. Mm-hmm. Um, Pitchfork Ben Tillman would have burned the Capitol down if he knew I was serving in it. Like, yeah. so it, there's, there's no clarifying that there is uh I, I, you walked in the other day uh, uh, when uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates was here. and uh, Our generation is James Baldwin. Yes, and if you read his powerful, powerful stuff and his uh, really assiduous uh, uh, account of history, it's pretty hard not to be uh, absolutely clear on what uh, what that war was about, what the Confederacy was about. And yet, still strong cultural ties to it. We I mean my first time really delving into the issue of the Confederacy was when I was 15 years old and my father and I got on a march from Charleston, South Carolina to Columbia, South Carolina with Darius Rucker mm-hmm. and mayor Joe Riley and others um, to take the flag down. And um, if you would have, I don't know if you were there. I know you watched it, but I don't know if you were actually in Columbia that day when it came down for the last time. No, you had people literally crying, all age groups, because I don't think people understood how stifling that symbol of oppression could be. And to have these reminders 
uh, around you all the time that are called Confederate monuments. In South Carolina, post-Brown versus the Board of Education, uh, in white flight, like you had in many places in the South, uh, we had this, uh, this independent school system. And so, like, a lot of these schools are named Andrew Jackson, Robert E. Lee Academy, um, Jefferson Davis Academy, uh, places that I wouldn't go to school at. And so it, it's hard to have those images around you all the time, but that's a part of the Southern culture. And I'm a NASCAR fan, too. You know how hard <laughs> that is? Have you been to a race before? I've not been to a NASCAR race. You, you, you're well, uh, Because you haven't invited me. You're coming to Darlington with me. All right. It's nothing like that experience, if you can get past looking at all the Confederate flags. <laughs> I, I will watch the race. <laughs> there you go. No, but um, uh, tell me what, um, as you watch Donald Trump, um, he obviously has really mined that fault line in uh, American politics. And my guess is probably still quite popular uh, among his base in South Carolina. His numbers in these southern states has been very high. Um, so there's been profit for him in trying to mm-hmm. uh, in trying to mine all of that. You know— not for the country necessarily. No, Donald Trump has utilized race as a valuable um, currency in politics and racism. Um, you've always, I remember, I'll never forget this. I talked to my father about it. Um, you pulled me aside one day and cautioned me about labeling people racist on TV. Mm-hmm. And you, your uh, admonition or instruction was that um, sometimes people are not racist, but they utilize racism. Right. And that doesn't make it any better, by no, the way. In certain ways, there's a cynicism, there's a that, cynicism. that makes it worse. worse. There's a calculation. Yeah. Um, and so I struggled with that for a long time in my critique of Donald Trump. Um, however, um, Donald Trump has enveloped himself in um, some of the more racist figures that we've seen in American politics. I mean, Steve Bannon held the job that you held. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, <laughs> that is kind of, that's where we were. That's where we were or where we are as a country. Um, Stephen Miller, for example, who has ideologies that uh, I believe I just find completely repulsive. Um, when you envelop your, 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 uh, your, yourself with those types of individuals and then you speak, uh, you don't even try to speak in these racial undertones. You use a bullhorn. When he went down to Alabama, Alabama of all places, and called NFL players protesting, majority of which are African, the overwhelming majority of which are African-American sons of bitches, then, I mean, that to me rang very, very loudly. Um, and so... Uh, and it was I, apropos to nothing because Colin Kaepernick hadn't even been in the league for to quite nothing. a while. It was random. I mean, it was a... It, was a, it wasn't random in that it, there was a method to it, it, but it, but it was not based on anything that was happening. In fact, the protests correct. became much more significant after, after the president did what he did. So I, I do think that the Donald Trump uses white supremacy. I do think that he uses racism. Um, you know, I, I'll let the history books uh, write whether or not Donald Trump is a racist. I've, I've only met him once. Yeah. Um, the impact, though, is... Uh, is 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 pretty clear. I think the title is irrelevant. Yeah, um, I got to ask you uh, one thing that interests me about your story is you are little little known, but you're a, a big uh, proponent of uh, Israel, uh-huh. and and you're very close to APAC, mm-hmm. the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, which is kind of the um, 
I know they they would they're not a lobbying organization. No, they're, they're political affairs. Yes, but yeah. they're a very powerful group on Capitol Hill, uh, and very close to the government of Israel. Very. Um, and you uh, got into a debate during the Democratic Convention of 2016 about whether uh, to remove language uh, that referred to uh, Israelis, Israel's presence in these uh, territories uh, as occupied or not, uh, Palestinian uh, territories. Uh, talk to me about that. Um, well, that, that was a... A loaded question. Um, so my, my support for Israel has been one that dates back to uh, uh, my years in college when I was a student government president at Morehouse and began to, uh, APAC invited me up and began to uh, bring me to their conferences. And I was, I've been able to go to Israel. I actually count Ron Dermer as a, as a friend of mine, the um, uh, Israeli ambassador, yeah. Israeli ambassador to, to the U S. Um, and so I, I've um, watched, our foreign policy as it relates to Israel and Palestine and Israel and Iran and Israel and Syria and Lebanon, all of its border countries, with great interest. And for me, um, more than being a supporter of the state of Israel, it was a learning uh, uh, journey. Um, you know, I tell people all the time, in order to under, understand Israel, as you've been, you, you, you kind of have to go. Yeah, right. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been in Palestine. I've been to Bethlehem. Um, I've been on uh, in Gaza, West Bank. I've uh, been to the border of Lebanon and Syria, and um, I just felt as if there is a country that uh, maintains the values that we hold near and true. Um, you know, you can be gay in Israel and uh, prosper. You can be a woman and be empowered in Israel. Um, you can be a, a Somalian immigrant and have a, a uh, have a uh, amazing life. But that doesn't mean that my support is, um, you know, unfettered. Um, I think that one of the reasons that we haven't had the progress uh, that we want between the Israel- Israelis and Palestinians is because of Bibi Netanyahu. I think that a lot of the clashes that we saw in the last administration between Barack Obama and Bibi Netanyahu were very personality driven. And so um, you just had two men who I felt uh, looked at each other in different ways. Um, uh, and I felt as if uh, the prime minister actually disrespected the 44th president of the United States on a number of occasions. Uh, and with that, well, being, he, you know, Ron Dermer, who you count as a friend, was uh, was a part of that and bringing him here in the midst of the, the midst debate of on the Iran uh, agreement was a provocative act. I, I thought it was provocative, and I thought it was disrespectful. And um, you know, I because of my support and my position, I'm able to say that and have an audience and have people who respond. Because if we're going to continue to build coalitions around having a safe and secure Israel with young people, young millennials, young people of color, um, then we're going to have to make sure that we can actually message. And it was very hard during that time period uh, for me to have any positive interaction with people about what was going on in our country as it relates to Israel when Bibi Netanyahu uh, was embarrassing the president. With that being said, though, I also get to tout the fact that under the last eight years of Barack Obama, um, the relationship has never been any stronger. In terms of military assistance? Uh, $31 and, billion dollars right. in MOU, F-35s in the Iron Dome. <laughs> I mean, you tout that. Um, it, it's a little more ambiguous when Prime Minister Netanyahu <laughs> yes. uh, accounts for it. Look, I, I'm uh, the son of a Jewish immigrant, a uh, Jewish refugee, so I have, uh, you know, I, I have very strong feelings about Israel. And one of them is that 
I applaud all the values that you talk about, but I worry about Israel's ability to continue as a Jewish democratic state and hold these territories and hold, uh, you know, and have the relationship with the Palestinians that they do now. So it's a thorny issue. Security is obviously a huge concern. But at the end of the day, um, you know, my my view is that uh, one has to acknowledge that there needs to be an answer, and building more and more settlements uh, I is think not that, the answer. I think that the White House took a legitimate position when they said that you should not build any more settlements. It's hard to negotiate any land swaps when you when you have right. all which the land. I think is the idea, <laughs> frankly. Yes, and so um, uh, you know, and 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 just to so people get a clear view of everything. I mean, um, the Palestinian government over fifty one percent of them are comprised of. Hamas right now. And so it's very difficult to have conversations about uh, negotiating anything um, when you have a group in power that doesn't believe you have the right to exist. Um, And so uh, I know one thing that I don't have the audacity to believe that I can figure this out um, by myself. um, And I don't believe Jared Kushner can either. Yeah. Well, listen, I, um, uh, I just found it. uh, It's intriguing. And I actually, uh, I applaud you for taking an interest uh, in that issue. Um, but, um, you know, I, and I agree with you in your assessment of the leadership. I, I think that there needs to be um, a, a different attitude on the part of the Israeli leadership, if, as well as the Palestinian leadership, if that uh, problem's going to get solved. Well, Bakari, um, it's been a treat to have you, not just here, but at the Institute of Politics. Um, one way to inspire young people to consider a path in politics is to uh, invite a guy who's barely older than they are and has been eight years in the South Carolina legislature and has made as much of a difference as you've made. So uh, I appreciate you being here both on this podcast and at the Institute of Politics. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.